4: Hello, my name's Dave, I am the editor of BBC History magazine, and this is the first part of our October podcast. I'm joined by our section editor, Rob. Hello. Now, we've had so much great content this month that we've decided to produce two pods instead of shoehorning it all into one. So we have this one, and then the second part will be released on the 9th of October.
3: You're you're taking your life in your hands by going to, to a medieval physician.
4: That's Dr Ian Mortimer. He'll be taking us on a trip back to 14th century England shortly.
3: At the heart of
6: the Devonshire house circle was this sort of remarkable menage a trois.
4: And that was Hannah Gregg, who was the historical consultant to the new film, The Duchess.
7: You couldn't tell them what you were working on. I think they thought we were filing clerks.
4: And finally, Patricia Davis, who was one of the people involved in Operation Mincemeat, will be telling us all about this dramatic World War II deception.
2: Now, of course, all of these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, with a rather striking image of a young Queen Victoria on the cover. But you don't have to go to the shops to get it, though, as we have a great subscription offer for you this month. You can subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you'll save 25% on the shop price. Call us on 0844 844 0250, or you can go online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine and quote the code pod 1008 to take part in this fantastic offer right now time for our first interview in this month's
4: magazine ian mortimer has written a fascinating feature for us about the medieval market i've been chatting to him to find out more about everyday life in the 14th century town So Ian, if I was to find myself somehow transported back to a town in England in 1308, what would be the the three main differences that you think would immediately strike me?
3: I think the first would be the lack of public space by comparison with a modern town. You're used to seeing towns which have parks, which have areas set aside for, for the public. In a medieval town you don't have these public spaces. Yes, you do have churches and churchyards, but they're very much for those parishes and the people who live in these towns. You do have a marketplace, but that's very much for its specific purposes. You wouldn't find the, the, the sense of public space uh, in a medieval town. You'd also be struck by the lack of paving. When you look at a medieval town's roads, you'll find ruts in the middle of the street. You'll find drains in the middle of the street. You'll find they're pretty unsavory by comparison to modern standards. Um, But probably the first visual uh, striking difference you'll see is how close the houses are together. Even in the main road, the houses are really, really close together by modern standards. And on little alleyways, you might find them five or six feet uh, apart across the other side of the road. So that as each house steps out, as it goes up to the second and third stories in some cases, you can almost reach across and touch the house on the other side of the road. So it's this intense grouping together of all these tiny little alleyways, um, which will really impress you as a, 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 a visual difference from modern times.
4: You get a sense of that if you went to, uh, went to York these days, weren't you yes, wandering yes, around absolutely. the Shambles type area. Is that, is, that the best, is that the best example?
3: The Shambles in York is a really good example of how the houses uh, get very close together, but also it's a good example of how you see houses at odd angles. The idea of all the houses in one long straight line um, is a relatively modern thing. I mean, you do have houses in rows in in alleys, of course, and in streets, but those houses all slightly different angles to each other. And York, you get a very uh, clear vision of that too. Yeah.
4: Okay. So in your feature in the magazine this month, you've described the medieval shopping experience for us, and it's a great feature. Um, Now, if I was a visitor to a medieval town, what else would I find to do with myself once I'd exhausted the opportunities in the markets? I mean, you said there's not much in the way of public space, so what would I do with myself?
3: Well, there's not that much in the way of public entertainment. You do get um, uh, the church organizers' plays, and you do have um, the, 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 the livery companies of the town uh, uh, organizing their religious uh, demonstrations in, in the town, but there's relatively little public entertainment. Most of it is private in the house of, houses of the, the wealthy who have their musicians, who do have their uh, entertainment. Um, probably the easiest way of getting some entertainment or sort of what to do you may say would be going into the taverns and the ale houses and uh obviously drink is available but also there is dicing available but even people do like to gamble and playing board games and uh dice games are it, virtually everybody does it and everybody loses money through dicing it's a, you, you find it all the way from the top of the society down to the bottom um mm-hmm. You'll also find a lot of storytelling. I mean, we we think of uh, Chaucer's pilgrims trotting off on their uh, uh, palfreys towards Canterbury telling stories. Well, people did. I mean, one of the most common forms of entertainment is simply having a story read to you from somebody who can read, or or actually the, the verbal sort of uh, the oral tradition of storytelling, which might include um, Robin Hood stories from this time, and we know in the, from well, William Langland's poem that people were uh, telling stories of Robin Hood at this time and stage. So yes, yeah, storytelling and uh, dancing and gambling probably the most most common. Though you will of course find uh, minstrels occasionally at. Uh, uh, um, uh, mummings and uh, public celebrations
4: so if i if, uh, assuming i found my way to one of these taverns and i've uh, i've you know lost my money on dice and i've listened to a story i'm uh, hungry now so would i eat well i was there
3: would you eat well i don't know how much money you've got um Food, I mean, this is a general point, but, I mean, food is really expensive in the Middle Ages. We think that the price of food is going up now. I mean, food is nothing like as expensive as it was uh, in, in the 14th century. But if you if you actually relate... Take, take something that hasn't changed in the way you um, uh, get hold of it and you process it, so like saffron. And I, and I compared the price of saffron in the 14th century with now, and it's still picked by hand, so you can make this comparison. And then I took that as a stable uh, means of comparing prices, and I compared food prices in the Middle Ages with now. And depending on um, exactly which price you use, there's a certain variation, you could find yourself paying the equivalent of between 30 and £50 for a chicken. Uh, so if you think in terms of having to spend between 30 and £50 on a raw chicken, that, that's how valuable food is in, 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 to, the, to these people. Now, if you compare it to wages, of course, it's an even bigger increase. You could find yourself having to spend the equivalent of £150 on a chicken. That's how exceptionally valuable food is. So if you're going to go and uh, look for food around a medieval market, yes, you will find cooked meat, you will find a, a, a roast chicken, but you'll pay through, you'll pay several days' wages for it. So it's only really for the wealthy. The best way of getting protein uh, meals, if you're um, on the hoof, as it were, in a a market is to get meat pies. But meat pies tend to be very, very low quality meat. And your chances of getting food poisoning from them is probably significant because we do have cases in legal records where people have been found uh, pulling a pig out of a river that's been there for a couple of days and then serving it up in uh, meat pies. So that's your cheapest way of getting hold of food, but so, it's also going to be your riskiest.
4: So on, on that point, how how worried should I be about hygiene standards?
3: Well, you should be very worried. I mean, you should be very worried because they aren't worried. Um, that's, uh, they have no concept of germ theory. They have no concept about how you um, uh, disinfect a knife, for example, if they're going to cut into your arm and take blood. They have no sense of... Uh, um, the, the fact that sharing a, a a goblet might actually take disease from one person through uh, to another, so yes you should be very uh, very worried about uh, hygiene um, the, you have a few myths about hygiene i mean we do have often people saying that people simply throw out their uh, their uh, dirty um well the, Loo from an upstairs window into the street, and it, it's not really true. There are strict rules about how you clean the streets of a, a town. And the, the appearance, the appearance of things, is very important. So there is this sort of strange incongru- incongruity in the, the fact that everything is very clean by their standards, and very dirty by our own because of germ theory. But um, yes, on the whole. You know, people died young and one of the reasons was disease simple as that you should be worried about hygiene
4: so uh, going back to the shambles in york that was the, that was a street of butchers wasn't it so would i yes. uh, w- if if i was walking down there i'd see a lot of meat with flies all over it would i or would they would they w- would i would i look at that street and think oh my god i i simply can't eat any of this meat
3: um well you probably would uh Difficult question to answer, because yes, you would have seen flies on the meat, and yes, you would have seen um, a lot of things that you wouldn't see by modern in, in a modern butcher's shop. You wouldn't have seen any refrigeration. I mean, when fish is transported around, like, for example, they haven't got ice to keep it in, so they keep it in wet hay and things like this. So there's a lot of things that you would think, oh, that's not the, the right way to do it. But... I mean, meat can actually keep quite well by comparison with something like fish, so so yes, it will look strange to you, and but on the whole, it's, it's pretty resilient stuff. What you want to avoid are the, the unscrupulous dealers and uh, the' the people who have scavenged food and uh, and then prepared it, and as I say, in a pie, you can stick anything so um, if you're actually in York which is the second most important city in the country, you're in the main butcher's market, they have to observe certain rules and they will try and make their meat look as good as possible for you. Mm. So you're, you're shopping in the best place there.
4: Assuming I'm, I'm not uh, around in 1348, 49 when the Black Death is raging, but yep. what would happen if I ate a, a dodgy pie and I got sick? Uh, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, wasn't immediately about to die from, from the Black Death, but what, what would happen to me if I was feeling a little peaky?
3: Right. Well, if, you're, if you're in a town and you're feeling a little peaky, well, the, probably the first thing is if you are a member of the community of that town, you'd probably go to the person who know, who you know knows most about medicine. So it would normally be a, a woman in the locality who has experienced caring for the sick, and she will have a look at you and sort of say, oh, this is what the situation is. If you then needed to go for professional help from a physician, you're unlikely to get uh, a qualified uh, university-educated physician actually dealing with you. There are very few of those in the country. Um, but you'll get somebody who set himself up as a physician, and he will have tables of where the stars are and uh, how the, the, the four humors of the body ought to, to relate to the heavens. And he will ask you such questions as, well, well, he won't actually see you. So he'll ask your representative, whom you sent to see him, He will ask, what are you suffering from? Um, When it actually, the the symptoms uh, uh, occurred. so he can work out what the, the, the planetary cycle or alignments were, were doing at that time. And he will also want to see a urine sample and he will make a, a judgment on your urine based on the 24 qualities of urine on his uh, charts. And he might take uh, ask for a blood sample as well and um, he might taste that to, to, to try and work out whether you're too choleric or, you're, or, 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 or the, too sanguine or, or in which way the, the humours of your body have got out of step. I mean, that's the diagnostic side of things. But then if he's actually going to take action, and he probably will because he can charge for it, he will have a course of purgative to get rid of all the the nasty things in your body, and that might be uh, something to make you vomit or something to give you chronic diarrhea made of mallow. It's really nasty, the purgative bit of a medieval medicine. Um, So he's basically laid you low through emptying your body. He will then give you a remedy, and in about 10 to 20% of cases, that will include some sort of animal-based medicine. a concoction. It might be sort of ground up roasted bats or, or, or something along those lines. But a significant, um, number of remedies are going to have some part of animals in them. And after that, after he's sort of almost killed you with these things, he'll give you a restorative, which is the idea is bringing you back to, um, a, a state of health. I mean, physicians do kill people. There's very little significant, um, Medical knowledge, which you would regard as ah, that is reliable. I mean, there are there are some good bits. I mean, if you've got digestive complaints, he might well say take pomegranates, and you can get pomegranates in the major English cities, and he will sort of know that colchicum will do some good for gout. But on the whole, you're you're taking your life in your hands by going to to a medieval physician.
4: Okay, and finally, you've uh, you sort of already challenged the idea that uh, if you're walking along a medieval street, you're you're in mortal danger of having someone pouring their, uh, their, their ah, the, the of pos- yeah. their toilet on top of your head. Are there any other misconceptions about medieval urban life that you'd like to release relieve us of?
3: Um, I think one of the, 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 the interesting ones is uh, the emptiness of towns. Um, I live in a town which has got fifteen hundred people in it, which everybody thinks is oh, that's a village, and when I end up doing places, and they talk about uh, this town had 1,500 people living in it, they sort of uh, compare the two. Now, you can't compare the... the, 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 the number of people living in a medieval community with the people who live in a modern community. Because a medieval community of 1,500 people, that's a sizable place, something like Chichester, it's a city as well. So you've got so many people coming in and going, and it really is, a, a medieval city is a place of huge life and activity, it's a really busy place, all sorts of things you can buy there. And so that 1,500 is a real uh, misleading figure when you compare it to modern times. So this this idea that these places are sparsely populated, well it, it, that's a, a misconception I'd like people to sort of get rid of because that is simply the people who are living there permanently. You can look at two or three times of as many people being there every day. So they're very busy places considering how small they are. Um, the general misconception about medieval life is one I always want to get across. The, the, the life was nasty, brutish, and short, everybody says. And I always say, well, that is true. But it is many other things as well. I mean, if you're in a medieval town, you're going to each of those churches and you'd have found them attended. You'd have found them having their precious objects carefully looked after. You'd have found all the paintings there. You'd have found uh, a huge wealth of artistic, uh, creative, imaginative, spiritual life going on. Um, so yes, nasty, brutish, in short it was, but life was full of other things as well. That's what I always like to get across to people. I think with respect to, to towns uh, in, in particular, um, I, I think people ought to think about the loyalty of the townsmen to their towns, when you, um, I mean, medieval England is a really brutal place. The, the, the level of murders uh, is so much higher than modern, in modern times. You have difficulty understanding how violent society was. So if you're in medieval England, you want your friends to look out for you. And therefore, if a man were to risk being exiled from his town for... Being bad at his trade or fraudulent in his uh, uh, um, uh, sale of wine or bread or something like that, he could get exiled from his town that 's a terrible threat and this social control through making people um, really really cling to their towns and their friends as a matter of identity and safety is, is something I think people to bear in mind i mean that is a, a fantastically powerful um, way of uh, understanding medieval society when you see that people really are determined to, to keep the, the, the friendship and contact they have in the place where they grew up if they really really that's their only protection so i think that's yeah that's the other uh, uh thing we don't appreciate quite as much which i is worth thinking about certainly
4: ian mortimer's a time Traveller's guide to medieval england is published by the bodily head on the 2nd of october now, before we go on to Hannah Gregg and the Duchess, please indulge us for a brief advertising message, which I hope you'll find interesting.
1: BBC Audiobooks has just published a new CD called The End of the Beginning, Winston Churchill's Greatest Speeches, Volume 2. Churchill was a prolific, inspiring and brilliant orator, and this is the second volume of digitally remastered recordings from the BBC Archive. Here's an example of what's on the CD.
5: King George VI died at Sandringham on the night of February the 5th, 1952. Churchill was now in his final term as Prime Minister, and it fell to him to deliver this simple and moving tribute to an unassuming but much loved monarch. My friends, when the death of the King was announced to us yesterday morning, there struck a deep and solemn note in our lives, which, as it resounded, far and wide, stilled the clatter and traffic of 20th century life in many lands, and made countless millions of human beings pause and look around them. A new sense of values took, for the time being, possession of human minds. And mortal existence presented itself to so many at the same moment in its serenity and in its sorrow, in its splendor and in its pain, in its fortitude and in its suffering. The king was greatly loved by all his peoples. He was respected as a man and as a prince far beyond the many realms over which he reigned. The simple dignity of his life, his manly virtues, his sense of duty, alike as a ruler and a servant, of the vast spheres and communities for which he bore responsibility, his gay charm and happy nature, his example of a husband and a father in his own family circle, his courage, in peace, or war. All these were aspects of his character which won the glint of admiration. Now here, now there, from the innumerable eyes whose gaze falls upon the throne. We thought of him as a young naval lieutenant in the great battle of Jutland. We thought of him when calmly, without ambition or want of self-confidence, he assumed the heavy burden of the crown and succeeded his brother, whom he loved and to whom he had rendered perfect loyalty. We thought of him so faithful in his study and discharge of state affairs, so strong in his devotion to the enduring honor of our country, so self-restrained in his judgments of men and affairs, so uplifted above the clash of party politics, yet so attentive to them, a wise and shrewd in judging between what matters and what does not. All this we saw and admired. His conduct on the throne may well be a model and a guide to constitutional sovereigns throughout the world today and also in future generations. the last few months of King George's life, with all the pangs and physical stresses that he endured, his life hanging by a thread from day to day, and he all the time, cheerful and undaunted, stricken in body, but quite undisturbed, and even unaffected in spirit, These have made a profound and an enduring impression and should be a help to all. He was sustained not only by his natural buoyancy, but by the sincerity of his Christian faith. During these last months, the king... ...walked with death... ...as if death were a companion... ...an acquaintance whom he recognized... ...and did not fear. In the end, death came as a friend... ...and after a happy day of sunshine and sport... ...and after good night to those who loved him best... ...he fell asleep... ...at every man or woman strives to fear God and nothing else in the world may hope to do.
1: This two-CD audiobook is on sale now from all good booksellers and is also available as a digital download. For more information on this title, visit www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash bbcshop.asp. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
4: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now let's hear from Hannah Gregg all about her role on The Duchess.
0: Now, if you've been to the cinema lately, you may well have seen The Duchess, a British feature film directed by Saul Dibb, starring Keira Knightley, Ralph Fiennes and Dominic Cooper. The film is based on Amanda Foreman's highly acclaimed biography of the scandalous 18th century English aristocrat Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. The historical advisor to the film was Hannah Gregg, a lecturer in the History Department of the University of York. Hannah's also written a feature in our October issue of BBC History magazine, looking at Georgiana and the 18th century ideal of beauty. And Hannah is here with me today to talk about her experiences on the film. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Sue. Hello. Um, now, for listeners who haven't come haven't come across Georgiana before, tell us a little bit about her.
6: Well, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, um, is, I suppose, familiar to historians, really for her participation in the late 18th century elite and political world. Um, She was born Lady Georgiana Spencer, but in 1774, she married the fantastically wealthy, but also fantastically haughty, 5th Duke of Devonshire. And really from thereafter, her life became, in part, sort of extraordinarily glamorous and high-profile, Um, She becomes renowned as a political hostess for the Whig Party, um, an election campaign for them, a leader of fashion, and a patroness of elite society. But on the other hand, the reality of her private life and her personal existence were far less glamorous. Um, at the heart of the Devonshire house circle was this sort of remarkable menage a trois in which her husband the Duke maintained this woman Lady Elizabeth Foster who was actually the Duchess of Devonshire's friend and his own mistress and he kept his mistress within the Devonshire household incorporating his illegitimate children in the nursery alongside Georgiana's children. Um, So it's this sort of obscure relationship between the inequities and the peculiarities of the Duchess's private life and her apparent public power that are explored in the film um, that's out at the moment.
0: It's an amazing story isn't it? Tell us a bit about your research interests and explain how you came to be asked to be the historical advisor on the film.
6: Well, I suppose some might say that um, I'm an expert in elite frivolity um, mm-hmm. and all things to do with the kind of excesses of, of elite London life. Uh, but the heart of my research is an interest in what in the 18th century was was called the Beaumont, uh, which loosely it translates as the fashionable elite. Um, and it's an English term that was used by commentators to describe the high-profile metropolitan lifestyle of nobles such as the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. Um, and this concept the Beaumont emerges because of some profound changes um, in British society at the time, in which the elite had to maintain their power through sort of public performances and sociability in London. Uh, and that's really what my own research explores.
0: How did they come to ask you to be an advisor on the film? I think they were, I think they were probably just looking around for people
6: who knew the most about 18th century gambling techniques and things. I mean inevitably they had this fantastic biography by Amanda Foreman um, of Georgina as their starting point which is really very well researched but because my research expertise lies more broadly in in elite culture um, throughout the long 18th century and particularly the aspects of of London life I suppose that's why I proved useful to them and that they wanted to explore some of that broader context and and also think a bit about the relationship between the elites and the wider public Um, so there are some scenes in the film where Georgina um, is acting in London society, so there's some street scenes, a theatre scene, a a political election. And at that point, the kind of relationship between the elite and the rest of London society is is something that they they really wanted to develop in a bit more detail.
0: And so did you work with them at sort of at the script stage to include things that added realism? Um, How did it work on a practical level? Yeah, I
6: suppose I was really... um, on call for any historical questions as they came up when they were preparing for filming and and during the shooting. So I cast a critical eye over the script uh, when it was first developed looking for any sort of historical inaccuracies that had crept in. And we thought a bit about background detail. Um, So for example, there's one lovely scene where the Duchess of Devonshire sees um, some of her servants spying on the Duke as his relationship with his mistress develops. And and we drew um, on that from um, 18th century depositions from court cases that were made by servants who sort of told all on their elite employers. So we tried to use primary source materials to underpin um, some of the scene setting um, behind the script and the shooting as well. And then when the shooting developed, um, when the shooting began, sorry, I, I spent the first two weeks on set with them as they sort of got a feel for the period. Um, and then answered any queries as they came up and just kept an eye on things and sort of complained vigorously when
0: anything when mm-hmm. happened It didn't seem to be 18th century. Okay, so a sort of historical watchdog, if you like. Yeah, a historical <laughs> complainer. Yes. <laughs> um, now, of course, I've got to ask the inevitable question. Um, what was it like on the set and who did you meet?
6: Um, Well, it's fascinating, actually, to see the 18th century world come alive. Um, And, you know, I had the privilege of meeting all of the cast and all of the crew who are working on the film. And, you know, it's a pretty big operation, really. And and for the big scenes, there are often many extras, as well as the main cast members, who, of course, were familiar with Keira Knightley and Ray Fiennes.
7: Mm. Um,
6: And Ray in particular, I think, was very interested in the history. So we had long discussions about the historical context, and he was a very avid reader so I set him some reading lessons I would oh, right. for one of my students on on my courses and you know <laughs> which historian wouldn't want to talk to very Fine so indeed he, in full yes. costume sort of frowning yes. nobly in a wig it was fantastic
0: <laughs> superb an actor would love to to get some insight into what goes you know what goes on in his character's mind so to speak and um, knowing some of the history and and how his character would behave I guess is an ideal way to to do it.
6: It seems to be very important to them to, to to kind of get to get behind the script as well and think very carefully about their responses to particular moments.
0: Now you've you've obviously um, seen the film. I believe you went to a preview before it was released. Um, did you like it? Yeah, I enjoyed
6: it very much. Um, it's very interesting to see a film, actually, when, you, when you've seen it in development and then to suddenly see it on the screen and, and it's sort of transformed, actually, on, on the big screen um, and without all the paraphernalia that you see, of course, when you're watching it being filmed and all of the music. And I thought it you know, really looked very beautiful and captured the decadence of, of the elite oh, lifestyle very well. Um, so, no, it's very intriguing to see it in its, final, in its final cut.
0: Fantastic. Now, back to you. You're working on a book at the moment. What's that all about?
6: Um, well, the book explores uh, the life of the Beaumonts, this 18th century um, fashionable elite, um, and it's called The Fashionables, um, London's Beaumont in the 18th century. Uh, and it tries to explore the maintenance of elite authority in the 18th century, particularly through social and cultural factors. Um, so, through clothing, through public performances, um, just through the lifestyle and how that lifestyle that, we, that we're so familiar with from caricatures actually maintained elite power in the 18th
0: century. Thank you very much. Uh, so what was the title again? The fashionable London's very in the 18th century. Thank you. you. like the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds, we look forward to that. Thank you, Hannah. Um, Hannah's feature in the October issue of BBC History magazine examines the 18th century ideal of beauty, a quality that was perceived not simply as one of physical allure, but also manners, power and position. The Duchess was filmed at various locations, including Bath, Holcomb Hall and Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, the seat of the Dukes of Devonshire. At Chatsworth until 31st of October, you can see displays about Georgiana and the film, including spectacular portraits, treasures from the archive and two original costumes worn by Keira Knightley in the film. Find out more at www.chatsworth.org. The film The Duchess is out now on general release and you can see a trailer on the official website at www.theduchessmovie.com.
4: Our final interview is BBC History magazine section editor Rob Attar talking to World War II deception veteran Patricia Davis. Before we listen to that though, let's hear Rob's
2: monthly suggestions for free things that history lovers should do this month. Rob. OK, well, first up, we've got a very interesting exhibition coming to the Royal Academy on the 25th of October. It's called Byzantium 330-1453, and it traces the history of what was the Eastern Roman Empire from its foundation until the sacking of Constantinople by the Ottomans. The curators there have managed to acquire an amazing array of artefacts from the Byzantine Empire, and it looks like one not to be missed, especially as exhibitions like this they only seem to come round about once every 50 years. Really? Every 50 years? The last one was 50 years ago, and I was talking to the curator of this one, he said this might be the last one ever, as far as he can tell, so definitely want to go and see. OK, what's your second selection? Well, secondly, I'd like to draw your attention to the Times Cheltenham Literary Festival, which runs from the 10th to the 19th of October. Now, there seem to be more and more of these literary festivals springing up all the time, and what people might not know is that quite a lot of historians take part in them as well. So, for example, at Cheltenham this year, we've got the likes of John Julius Norwich, Simon Sharma, Terry Jones and Andrew Roberts, to name a few. And if you'd like to check out the programme, you can do so at CheltenhamFestivals.com. I've booked in to go and listen to David Starkey speaking up there, actually. Have you? Yes, I have, yeah. You never told me? I didn't. And finally. Well, finally, as well as words appearing in Cheltenham, Simon Sharma is coming back to our TV screens this month with his new series, The American Future. In the programme, Sharma will be looking at various issues affecting contemporary America, such as war, race and um, resources, that kind of thing, and he'll be offering a historical perspective to them. Now, as anyone who's watched his previous documentaries will know, Sharma's an excellent communicator, so this series should be well worth watching. It's going out on BBC Two. We don't yet have confirmation of the transmission dates, but if you don't want to miss it, make sure you sign up to our weekly TV email service, which you can do through our website. And I've also done an interview with Simon Sharma about his new series, which you can read in our October issue. Thanks, Rob. So, that's
4: three uh, excellent ideas for history enthusiasts to, uh, to get on with this month. Um, but now let's move on to our final interview, which is all about a World War II deception story. But first, we need a little bit, bit of background. So, Rob, tell us about Operation Mincemeat.
2: OK, in the spring of 1943, the Allies were planning a landing in Nazi-occupied Europe. For strategic reasons, their preferred choice was Sicily, but they were concerned that the Germans would realise the importance of the island and concentrate their defences there to repel any invasion. So in order to get round this problem, British intelligence came up with a quite cunning deception plan.
4: And what was this cunning plan?
2: This plan was that they obtained a dead body and they gave the corpse a new identity as a royal marine called Major Martin. They dressed him in uniform and provided him with fake military documents that implied the Allies were planning to land in Sardinia and Greece instead of in Sicily. The body was then released into the ocean to wash up on the coast of Spain, and it was made to appear as if he'd been killed in a plane crash.
4: Did the Nazis fall for it?
2: Well, the Allies knew that there were Nazi agents active in the area, and sure enough, the false information was picked up and fed to German high command, and yes, they swallowed the whole story. Crucial forces were diverted away from the defence of Sicily, which helped the landing, and the story actually inspired the later film, The Man Who Never Was.
4: And what, what does Patricia Davis have to do with all this?
2: Well, Patricia Davis worked in naval intelligence during the war. Her boss there was Ewan Montague, who was one of the prime instigators of Mincemeat. She was she was there when, when the operation was taking part, and she, last week, told me about her memories of the operation 65 years ago. So, how did you come to be involved with the operation?
7: Well, because I worked in, in a section in the Admiralty that dealt with um, the Ultra. We were reading all the German messages that came from Bletchley Park. And we used to make a little uh, summary each day for the chiefs of staff of what we thought was important. And we also passed on information to other branches of the Admiralty on a need-to-know basis, if there was something important in their direction. My boss was Ewan Montague, who wrote the book on Mincemeat and was involved in the operation himself. Well, he was the leader, really, of the operation.
2: What was your role in the operation?
7: My role was nothing in the operation. I just worked in the office where it was all planned.
2: You watched it all happening?
7: Of course. We all knew in, in that office. We were all absolutely fascinated, as you can imagine. Ewan and Charles Chumley, who was a man who worked in MI5, were the investigators of the operation. And, well, they did everything. They took the body up to Scotland, put it on the submarine, and that's how it went off. The preparations beforehand were very meticulous, they really were. I was only a young girl at the time, I think I was 22. It was terribly exciting to a young girl and to everybody in our office, however old they were.
2: Did you realise the extent of the operation when you were there?
7: Yes, we all knew exactly what was happening. I mean, there are certain details, of course, we didn't know, but they were very few. And we had nothing actually to do with the body itself. You and the members of the 20 Committee, if you've heard of the 20 Committee, they were the people who used to run double agents. Although Mincemeat, of course, wasn't a double agent, he, he certainly fulfilled the role, really.
2: Did you see how they managed to get hold of the body?
7: How did they get hold of the body? Well, I'll tell you who got it. There was a coroner in London at that time called Bentley Purchase. And he was a rather um, unconventional character. And my boss, Ewan Montague, who, who was a barrister, knew him through his, his life as a barrister. And as he was always seeing dead bodies all over the place, he was instrumental in finding the right body because it was terribly difficult to find a body that hadn't either been injured or died of some other cause. You know, they wanted a body that looked like, as if it might've had pneumonia because that was consistent with drowning, you see. You get water in the lungs.
2: They managed to find one in the end, then?
7: Well, there was this man who, um, he was a porter, and he apparently mistakenly drank some rat poison. I think that probably also helped the idea that he might have had pneumonia.
2: How did they create the personality and like the life story for Major Martin? Well,
7: that, that was well, one of the interesting parts. They invented a father for him, a fiancé, and the papers that he was carrying, they enclosed a picture of the fiancé, she was a girl who was working in MI5, but she didn't know anything about the operation. They just ran around MI5 asking attractive girls if they could provide a photograph. Tremendous amount of care was taken, you know, to get the right clothes, get, uh, right bank. Ewan used his brother-in-law's house for the letter that the girl wrote her love letter on and um, immense care was made to keep it sort of in the family so to speak and and the bank you know he knew someone in some bank and so he was chosen as the bank manager and the clothes were got from army stores because he was made a major in the marines because if he'd been in the navy gives the shop would have had to have had a man come and cut the suit for him because naval officers uniforms are always tailored and so you had to have fittings and all that sort of thing Um, you couldn't really have a coming down and fitting a suit to a dead body so they chose the marines i think came from army stores all their clothes and they also chose old underwear for him to wear so it didn't look as if he'd sort of dressed up to go on this trip every little detail was very carefully thought out do
2: you remember at the time how optimistic were your colleagues that the plan was going to
7: work um well we thought it would work actually because you ewan and charles chumley had had planned it so carefully. But we weren't quite sure that some awful hitch should happen. You know, I mean, there's so many ifs and buts and anything like that. It would be very difficult to be absolutely sure. But we got the news of, that it had worked, you know, through Ultra, through Enigma, because they were started moving troops, changing defenses in Sicily moving troops even from France to Greece because that was another object we put in the letters that accompanied the body that we were going to do a a landing in Greece. But the letters were very subtle. They didn't name anything specifically, but it would be perfectly easy for someone in the know to understand what the letters meant.
2: When you found out that the Germans had fallen for Operation Minceveat, was there a very euphoric atmosphere in the office?
7: We, we, We were absolutely jumped up and down all, all day, I think. We've never felt so happy. I mean, we were really delirious with happiness because it had been a long... Well, I mean, it was only three or four months, but, it, you know, it seemed a long time, and it was so exciting. And for it actually to work was glorious for us, and, of course, particularly for you and and the top people, not only minions like me.
2: They fell for it completely, didn't they, the Germans? They fell for the whole thing?
7: They did fall for it, Yes. Hitler apparently was very interested and also fell for it and was quite convinced, even after we'd done our landing in Sicily, that that there was going to be another landing in Greece.
2: I suppose it must have saved, well, countless lives, really.
7: Well, I think so, and it's funny, actually, because my husband was a naval officer, and uh, well, RNVR, if you can call that naval officer, and um, he'd landed in Sicily three days before the actual landing because he was sussing out things there for the navy and my brother-in-law was there in in the army slightly later but they would probably have both lost their lives if mincemeat hadn't worked so i would never have had a husband he's not the one i've got
2: (laughs) so it really made a personal difference to you as well the operation
7: well, it did because um, because of that. But I mean, I hadn't even met my husband then, so um, perhaps I would have found somebody else, or perhaps I would, uh, perhaps I wouldn't. <laughs> I've never seen an estimate of how many lives it saved, but it must have saved a lot because they moved some very powerful divisions and and also um, guns on the coast and all that sort of thing. It was, it was um, amazingly successful, really. It was only quite a small operation, just getting a body and dressing it up and giving it a personality and a girlfriend and a father and a bank and um, an engagement ring, you know, there were seats for all those things on the body.
2: It just worked brilliantly, didn't it?
7: Well, it did work. It did work
2: very well. Why do you think it worked so well? What, do you think it was just it was so well planned? Or was it lucky?
7: I think it was, yes. But, and the, the trouble they'd taken, the two of them, to invent this personality. And there were letters in, you know, from... Uh, one was from General Nye, who was one of our top... I think he was the Assistant Chief of Army or something, to General Alexander in North Africa. And that letter you know, was the most important letter because that had sufficient clues in it to tell them that they weren't going to land in Sicily, but in Corsica, Sardinia or Greece. And they fell for it. But they didn't, of course, move all the troops from Sicily. They would have been fools to do that. But they moved enough to make a hell of a difference. And Churchill, you know, was informed about all this. And he backed the operation and just sort of thing just up his street, this kind of thing. But apparently he did say at the time any fool would think it would be Sicily. But, you know, the the Germans were fools. I read somewhere sometime after the war that um, Field Marshal Kesselring was the only one that thought that it wasn't genuine. But all the others fell for it.
2: Would you say that was the happiest moment for you in the war?
7: I suppose it probably was. It was the most wonderful thing because we'd had terrible times, you know, particularly the Navy had a tremendous amount of ships being sunk and the submarine, German submarines, were so good and so lethal. They had an awful time in North Africa at one time, you know, it looked as if we were going to lose North Africa. But then we gradually climbed backwards and this was one of the things that was one of the biggest triumphs, really, I think, of the war.
2: Have you really talked about this much after the war?
7: Well, you had to keep it a secret for years that it had happened. My parents never knew. I'm sorry about that, because my father, you know, would have loved to have known all this, but you couldn't tell them what you were working on. I think they thought that we were filing clerks or typing something. You know. They had
2: no idea you were involved in these top-secret operations? No,
7: no, no idea at all.
2: You must have been desperate to tell people as well.
7: I would have loved to have told somebody about mincemeat, I must say, but you couldn't do it.
4: Now, you can hear more from Patricia Davis in the new Second World War section of the National Archives Learning Curve website. That can be found at
2: www.learningcurve.gov.uk. And don't forget that you can subscribe to BBC History magazine and save 25% on the shop price. Call us on 0844 844 0250 or go online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk. Forward slash history magazine and quote the code POD one thousand eight to take part in this fantastic offer.
4: OK, we're done. If you want more history, buy the magazine or why not visit our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com, to read the new blog, sign up to our new weekly History on TV newsletter, or just have a route around and see what we've got there. And do look out for the second slice of this month's podcast, which will be released on the 9th of October. That will include a five minute lecture
2: from Professor Richard Evans on the making of the Third Reich and I'll be talking to Kate Williams about the life of the young Queen Victoria I do hope you'll join us for that